listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, who went from his years in the Marine Corps to a private security contractor, now works heavily in the veteran space and helping veterans find a job. We'll get to him in just a moment. He's also, oh, by the way, a, uh, I guess we'll call it a friend of one of our previous guests uh, and, and found us, and we found him through a connection from a previous Hazard Ground guest. So more on that coming up in a moment. Just our normal announcements. As always, please follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast as well. Uh, make sure you guys subscribe to our YouTube channel, give a thumbs up, and a like to all the content there. Please make sure that you continue to leave us Apple reviews. Uh, this will help grow the show. Uh, I love getting notifications. I love re- hearing what you guys have to say. Everybody's really positive. Mostly everybody's really positive, but still, we welcome all the comments. No matter what, uh, good, bad, or indifferent, we certainly appreciate your guys' love and support of the show and the Hazard Ground community. Speaking of the Hazard Ground community, a uh, reminder, just in case you're so inclined, there is a Patreon page on our website, hazardground.com. If you guys want to care to donate to the show and, and help fund the show, uh, again, we haven't, we haven't made any money off the show. Uh, we, we, we try not to, and any money that we do make, we try to donate right back to veterans' charities. So, uh, if you guys would like to help us out that way, please do. The donate button in the top right-hand corner. Uh, don't forget about our Amazon promotion on our website, hazardground.com. That's at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. Uh, you guys can can go check out uh, our Amazon promotion, which once you click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage, it'll redirect you to Amazon. You do all of your normal Amazon shopping. Uh, we will get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. So we certainly, again, appreciate you guys giving us love and support. That way, and you can support veterans' charities uh, across the country just by um, going to hazardground.com, clicking on that Amazon button at the, at the bottom of the homepage. Uh, this week's guest is a former Marine who spent exactly four years in the Marine Corps, joined at 18, went into the Marine Corps, and after leaving the Marine Corps, uh, he went out to work as a private security contractor and worked in law enforcement, including working for Facebook for a short time, which is certainly interesting, and now works in military recruiting for a veteran-owned business that places veterans and former first responders with clients across the country. He also works at a ranch in Colorado, which is a nonprofit horse ranch that provides services to local veterans in Colorado, certainly thriving in the veteran space. He is Brady Myers joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Brady, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, man. Thank you. Stoked to be on here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I mentioned earlier your connection to one of our previous guests, Daniel Lombard, who was uh, also a Marine on the show. Uh, you know, when you and I had connected, uh, you had mentioned that you saw his episode and, uh, and and watched him tell his story and sort of you, you were sort of intrigued or at least, uh, you know, interested uh, in hearing in Daniel's story if you didn't already know it. But certainly that's how we connected. So it's always great to connect with a, a friend of a guest. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Man, those guys. The, the fellows at Project Refit, I can't even count how many connections I've, got, I've gotten from those guys. They're all over, but good dudes over there. Absolutely. Uh, your career started at 18 years old uh, and went into the military. So give us the, the lowdown on the beginning and how and why you got in the Marines. Yeah, sure. Um, so I would say growing up, you know, as your typical American kid, um, kind of grew up in a all American family. Um, pretty spoiled, to be honest, as a, as an only child. So 
certainly didn't have it rough. Um, very much in the sports, uh, basketball was kind of my jam. So, um, you know, growing up, I always wanted to get a scholarship, go play basketball, and then realizing that at five foot eight, I'm probably not going too far in that space. <laughs> so, um, ended up joining the Marine Corps at 18. Um, I think I kind of needed to get straightened out a little bit. I was certainly a, a pain in the butt growing up. Um, joined the infantry, spent four years in the Marine Corps as an infantry mortarman. Um, was fortunate enough to spend a little bit of time with uh, the trap team. So tactical recovery of aircraft personnel for two, two MUs that we did aboard Navy ships. So it was a good experience. Um, certainly miss it every day. I'm curious, why did you feel like you needed to be straightened out? Like what was going on? Were you getting in trouble? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'd say like my, my parents were very much, um, I would say old school. So mm-hmm. dad's from, you know, Eastern Kansas. Um, a lot of yes, sir, no, ma'am. Uh, a lot of that. Um, I kind of got in with the wrong crowd in high school, kind of started misbehaving, a lot of fights, got in trouble a lot at school. Um, and so for me, it was either continue getting in trouble or kind of, you know, going to the military. Um, so like I said, it certainly straightened me out a little bit. <laughs> Why the Marines? So I actually, when I think I was 17, when I started looking at the military, I had no idea what the Marine Corps was. All I knew was big army. I remember sitting at home on the dial up internet, looking at, you know, army videos. And I think there was a little clip about Marines in Iraq and started watching that. And I was like, all these guys are different. Started looking into that. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's the route that I wanted to go. So when you get to Marine boot camp, are you mentally and physically prepared for this whole experience? Like how, what was the, the time from high school to when you actually get to boot camp was how long? Um, so I was in the delayed entry program, I think for like six months. Um, I hear a lot of horror stories and it it seems like it's kind of the thing they try to do to me where they'll tell you, Hey, we don't have an infantry job right now, but you can go be a a mechanic. Um, we'll get you out tomorrow. And so for me, I waited, um, cause I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Um, but I mean, I was always physically fit. That was, that was always a big thing for me was the, the physical side of the house, but mentally I was ready to go. Um, so it was definitely a culture shock getting getting to boot camp. So what happened when you get there? I mean, you're getting screamed at, obviously, from the moment you get off the bus. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like I was pretty prepared for it. Like, I kind of knew, knew what was coming. Um, I think at a young age, I kind of understood, like, hey, you've got to go through this process if you want to do the things that you want to do in the future. Um, so for me, it, you know, understanding a lot of it was just a mind game. Um, boot camp was really kind of a blur for me. I think really around like school of infantry and then actually getting, getting assigned to two, four, that's where stuff really kind of hit the ground running. When you leave Marine boot camp, are you a 100% confident you made the right decision? Oh yeah. I mean, there are certainly times where I'm like, Oh man, I, I regret this a little bit. Um, but no, I, I knew for me, like I've always I think growing up as an only child, like I've always very much appreciated like a team aspect and a team environment. Um, so having that where now you've got 90 guys and granted, you know, it's just boot camp, but you got 90 guys trying to complete the same task. Like I knew I was kind of in my element at that point. What was it about the infantry that attracted you the most? 
I think for me, it was just, just the challenge. Um, it was funny. I actually had a pretty high ASVAB score. I think it was like a 78 or 79, something like that. And they wanted me to kind of go the officer route. And for me, it's like when I heard about the Marine Corps, or when I saw things, it was never, you know, not, not to bash on those guys because they're, you know, they certainly contribute to the mission as well. But, you know, you weren't seeing videos of guys working on trucks. You weren't seeing admin folks. You were seeing guys that were kind of boots on the ground, kind of that tip of the spear thing they always say. Um, so that's really what drove me, and that's that's where my interest always lied. Okay. When you get to the School of Infantry, um, sort of what's the – was there was there a part of it that you weren't prepared for? Mm. I don't think so. Um, I know we certainly had some hikes that were were pretty long. Um, so being a mortarman, like the kind of like culminating event in infantry school, you know, you're carrying your your uh, weapon system during. I think it was a it was a twenty k hike. Um, that was like our culminating hike, and so carrying that a lot of that stuff, a, a mortar mortar tube and mortar plates and all that stuff, man, it, it gets heavy after a while for sure. Um, but I wouldn't say there was anything I wasn't prepare, prepared for. Like I said, understanding a lot of it was just, it's a mental game and it's really kind of you versus you. Right. Uh, any, any of the guys from your school of infantry class that, that stand out for you as far as, you know, uh, whether they were the joker, whether they were the, the super serious guy, whether they were the one you're like, okay, that dude's going to go on to be a general one day. Like, you know, who, who are the guys who stand out? Oh, man, I would say if that's that's the crazy thing about the military and probably the Marine Corps specifically is there just so many different types of folks that you're around. Um, so I would say all of the above. Um, you know, unfortunately, kind of around School of Infantry is where you'll see – you know, the folks that maybe aren't as interested or maybe they feel like they made the wrong choice. Usually that's where you kind of see them getting weeded out. Maybe they transition to another MOS or, you know, you'll have those folks that want to get out of the military because I don't think they were really prepared. Um, so I'd say across the board, you kind of really see it all. When you graduate school of infantry, you know, and I should probably should ask this earlier, you know, you signed up in 2012, right? Um, you know, the the global war on terror is a little bit different, you know, theoretically we're out of Iraq at that point in time. Were you wanting and desiring to go into combat? Yeah, I was, um, you know, I remember, I remember sitting at the house watching, uh, 9-11 happen, uh, in my parents' bedroom. You know, I was still, still pretty young. I didn't really know what was happening. Right. Um, and then, you know, as you get older and you understand a lot more of that, it certainly made me want to, you know, be a part of fixing that or addressing that issue for sure. Um, but yeah. So when you, when you get to, uh, after you finish school of infantry, I mean, and you're going to two, four of all places, one of the most, you know. Um, Noted, uh, you know, Marine combat units uh, throughout the global war on terror. Do you expect to be going? Yeah. So um, I remember, I think it was, it was a month, maybe a couple weeks before my class kind of graduated SOI. We were told by the instructors, like, Hey, if your last name, you know, is after, I forget what it was, J or whatever, you're going to two, four, um, you guys are getting ready to go to Afghanistan in four months. 
they're doing a workup right now. Um, and so, you know, you had, you know, had everybody kind of had mixed emotions. You'd have the guys that were now they're super nervous because it's about to get real. You had other guys that were excited because that's what they wanted to go do. Um, then lo and behold, find out like a week later, they're like, Hey, we're messed up. Two four is actually coming back from Afghanistan. So right when you guys get to two four, a lot of those guys will just be coming back. Um, so as it was kind of a roller coaster for sure, but I think, you know, getting to two four as a new guy with guys coming back straight from Afghanistan was <laughs> certainly made for an interesting time being the new guy. Why? For sure. Um, so I remember getting there and I would say that's where you really realize a lot of the culture, especially on the infantry side of the house. Um, a little bit of hazing. Um, I remember a lot of those guys that had just gotten back from Afghanistan were pretty, pretty tanked, been drinking a bunch. Um, right when, when me and my peers had gotten there, I think there was, there was eight of us that got assigned to, to weapons company. Um, so it was definitely a, an introduction to, to the infantry and kind of getting ready to earn your right to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly was, there wasn't uh, as many guidelines or, uh, safety protocols as there was in maybe boot camp or, uh, or SOI for sure. But, <laughs> uh, what was that like for you personally? I mean, it, did they haze you a little bit harder, you think, or did, was there a certain experience that, you know, sticks out to you about those guys coming back and the way they treated you? Um, so for me at first, and I think with a lot of us, it's like, you know, we certainly thought it was unfair, weren't, weren't a fan of it, but it's like, you know, after a little bit, I realized like, Hey, this is what everyone else has gone through. And I, I started to understand the point of it more where it's like, you know, I certainly think there's a threshold or a line in the sand that maybe you don't cross as far as hazing goes or things like that. But if you look at it as a whole, if hazing is done right, in my opinion, you know, unit cohesion and things like that go up, especially for, you know, the peer group that's kind of receiving that end of it. Um, and I mean, you got to think, man, like you're training guys to go to war. Um, you know, it's not, it's not a regular job. You're not training people to sit in office all day. So you've got to kind of build guys up mentally as well at the same time. So I understood what it was for, but like I said, it was definitely a huge culture shock compared to, you know, coming from boot camp or SOI where stuff was certainly structured and there was certainly limitations to it. Um, I would say, and I think it's typical for infantry guys, but, um, you know, you're the, you're the lowest guy on the totem pole for that first, first year, typically up until like your last couple months of your first deployment. And that's kind of where those reins start getting passed and you kind of get treated like a human again. Um, it's, it's a very interesting statement you just uttered that I kind of like to play devil's advocate on. Yeah. Uh, if hazing is done right, uh, I would assume the line between right and wrong, not only is it very thin, but I think it's different for everybody. Yes. So could you elaborate a little more on hazing done right? Sure. Um, yeah, I'd say it's certainly a, a gray matter for sure. I don't think it's black and white, but... Um, like, how were you hazed that you felt like in retrospect, okay, I got this. Now I understand why this was done. 
Yeah. So, I mean, so there were some things that happened to me that were certainly physical that, um, you know, maybe I didn't agree with. Yeah. You know, I got, got my hands put on me quite a bit. Um, and so for me, my thought was always, you know, Hey, if, as long as you're not putting guys in danger or, you know, seriously messing with their mental health on a daily basis. Um, you know, if you've got folks going through the same negative things at the same time, you're going to come together to figure out a way to get through it. Yeah. Um, so for lack of me being able to articulate that in a, in a better way, that's kind of the way that I see it. Um, like I said, I see, certainly think there's things that are maybe a little too far. And I think for me, that's really where, you know, I battled with a lot of that and trying to figure out that threshold when I came back from my first deployment and then I was now a squad leader and in a leadership role and now trying to find that line of, Hey, what's too much, what's too little, what's going to bring my guys together. All right. So you get comfortable there at two, four. Uh, and again, full disclosure, you know, you never actually get to uh, Iraq or Afghanistan or anything that is is remotely close to it. You're part of a MU, a Marine Expeditionary Unit, and now you have a whole different set of deployments that you guys are headed out on. So where are you going first? Oh, so the first one, uh, so we went to Okinawa, Japan, mm-hmm. and then we kind of were based out of uh, Camp Hansen. And then hopped on the Bonhomme Richard and did the Mew and went to uh, Brisbane, Australia, Darwin, Sydney, Australia, and then Hong Kong. So as far as you know, deployment goes, certainly certainly spoiled in that in that aspect. Um, I don't know. I mean, probably the worst thing I've ever done is get on those Navy ships for for sixty days. That'll That'll test your patience and how so mental fortitude. Oh, I it felt like being just jammed into a can with a thousand other folks where you literally have no personal space whatsoever. Um, so it, it certainly wears on you. Um, for me, I didn't have an issue without having the phones or technology. I enjoyed that piece of it, but just not being able to spread out on those ships. That's what drove me nuts. The other big issue is that once one person gets sick on that ship, everybody's getting sick. So it's, it's, it's tough. Yeah. I think we learned that through COVID. Um, you know, yeah. Yeah, neither here nor there. <laughs> um, was there anything about, you know, Okinawa or any of the subsequent deployments um, from a, from a danger perspective at all? Mm, I would say no. Um I want to say it was the end of our first first uh, Mew that we did. We thought we were going to do um, some kind of respondent aid to, I want to say it was the Philippines that just got hit with, uh, I think they got hit with a hurricane. Um, but we were going to go do some humanitarian aid over there. Um, sounded like there was a lot of looting and stuff like that. So that was, that was kind of the only time we thought we were actually going to get a partake in stuff that we've been training for for the last year and a half, two years. Are you frustrated uh, with the idea that this isn't happening the way you think it's going to? Mm, I would say a little bit yes and a little bit no. Um, I would say yes just because it's like, hey, you know, this is what I had signed up for. Um, But, you know, also no because 
you know, talking with guys that have been there and done that, you know, it's not, it's not some kind of glorious thing that guys make it out to be like, you're, you're going to lose guys, um, which is probably the worst thing anybody can go through. Um, you know, I had a couple friends that I lost that were in other units that went. Um, and I guess the other reason being no is that it was, it was out of my control. Um, you know, I felt like I did what I could do to put myself in that situation to be able to go. Um, everything else was kind of out of my hands aside from maybe reenlisting and trying to get again. But so I'd say probably more not frustrated than being frustrated with it. You mentioned the tactical recovery aircraft uh, personnel, the, tra- the trap uh, mm-hmm. unit that you were a part of. Um, what's that like for you? And, and you know, uh, how often did you actually get a chance to put it in play? Yeah. Um, so with that, I think it was right before we jumped on that Mew um, with the platoon that I was in, we were fortunate enough to be selected for the trap team. Um, so I think we went to Camp Margarita and did some training with uh, – the special operations training group school that was out there. Um, and so with the trap team, essentially what, what that was for was, you know, when you're on those Navy ships, if for some reason a uh, aircraft goes down, you know, you had a small team that had the capability to jump on a bird pretty quickly and go do, do tactical recovery for if there's any personnel from that aircraft that have been downed or lost. Um so got to do a lot of cool stuff, a lot of fast roping off birds onto the ships, which gets a little little sketchy at times. <laughs> but um, never got to actually do it, which thankfully is a good thing. You know, meant no birds went down, no no guys were lost. Uh, got to train it and do some dry runs with it and things like that. So it was it was nice. It was, I think the biggest thing for me was being able to get off of that ship for like even if it was just an hour and stretch your legs and put your arms out and not bump into somebody. So this is your entire Marine experience to this point in time. Are you, yeah. um, you know, looking at like, Hey, I, I want to stay in. I want to, I wanted to do more, or is this sort of turning you into direction where you realize I'm going to end my, my Marine career pretty quickly. So I think for me, when I joined, like I knew I didn't want to stay in the Marine Corps more than four years. One, just because of, I mean, like anywhere else that you go, a lot of politics, a lot of, a lot of stuff that gets frustrating over time. Um, for me, I really wanted the freedom to do whatever it was I wanted to do next. I felt like with the Marine Corps, that was kind of just not a stepping stone because that will always be the greatest part of my life. Um, but I knew I wanted a different challenge. I knew I wanted something else. And I think. I don't remember the time where I really started really focusing on law enforcement, but I knew there was stuff after, after the military for me. So never, never thought about staying. Do you think that if you had had the chance to go to Afghanistan or be the, the infantryman you you at least wanted to be set out to be that the path might've been different. I think it could have been for sure. Um, I think it, it certainly weighs on you a little bit where you train and, you know, try to be as good at your job as you can and you never get to actually go do it. Um, I think that's, that's the worst part. So, I mean, that'll always be something I'll wonder like, Hey, what, how would this be different if I actually got to go do that? Um, so I don't know. There's always, there's probably always that piece of me that'll wonder, but before hindsight's we, 2020. Right. Before we get to your transition out, um, 
encapsulate your your time in the Marines? I mean, you know, uh, can you describe it in in a word? I mean, are you are you grateful? Are you are you disappointed? I mean, are you are you you know, was it a transaction more than anything else for you? No, I would say probably the best word one of used would be grateful. Um, there was things that I learned from the Marine Corps that I would never get anywhere else. There's certainly things that I gained from the Marine Corps that will stick with me for life. I think the – What's one of those probably things? The big, probably the biggest thing that I got from the Marine Corps, I would say, is probably my leadership approach. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think I would have had that had I not experienced some of the hazing and some of the some of the bad leadership – that I had throughout the Marine Corps, whether that was, you know, pretty high up the food chain all the way down to, you know, your direct leadership as a squad leader. Um, so I think that was my biggest takeaway. And that's certainly the way I try to take my approach to leadership. What do you miss the most? Oh, it's gotta be, it's gotta be the camaraderie for sure. Um, I always, my my wife's been with me ever since my last year in the Marine Corps. So she's kind of seen this, these massive transitions that I've gone through, but man, I remember being in the barracks and it's like, you could walk 10 feet to your buddy's room, but being in a, in a mortar platoon, you've got like 80 guys in a platoon and we were all like real, real close. So being able to walk 40 yards and gather 30 guys together to go do something and then you get out and you kind of don't have that. And that's, that was probably the hardest part for me when transitioning out. All right. So you're, you're leaving the Marine Corps now. Uh, and when did you first decide about the idea of going into law enforcement? So when I got out, um, that's kind of one of those guys, probably your regular infantry guy that just, I did not have a plan whatsoever. Knew I was going to go to school. Didn't know what I wanted to do. So I ended up getting into private security contracting out here in Colorado. And I think, you know, I did that for, gosh, probably three years. And I think after that first year was where I really started to heavily look at law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that kind of persuaded me that way, too, is my wife actually had just gotten a job right around that time as a police dispatcher. Um so I kind of, all those things kind of stacked up and it's like, for me, when I got out of the military, I figured, Hey, I'm either going to be a firefighter or I'm going to be a cop because those are the only real hard skills that I have to go do anything else. Um, it's, it. I forgot to ask this question before, but I'm curious, uh, when you left the Marine Corps, was the kid who needed to be straightened out, finally straightened out? Oh yeah. hundred okay. percent. Right. Um, yeah, that first year, especially with the, with the hazing and stuff that that certainly well, got my ego in check pretty quick. I mean, and, and well, it kind of, you know, ties into where we are right now because the straightened out person that you are now after the Marine Corps now has the ability to process all these tasks and do everything, you know, in a way that, that actually helps them gain a job. Uh, and, and that ultimately it for you is in law enforcement. So um, you end up, it, you're, you're actually just going to be a regular kind of cop, right? I mean, that's, that's what you're going through when you get to the, the police department. Yeah. So I was, I put myself through the police Academy um, through my GI bill. I mean, so out here in Colorado around that time, you know, law enforcement was super competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, so being a certified peace officer in the state of Colorado was certainly a, a leg up compared to other candidates 
in that space. But um, it was actually funny because as I was going through the police academy, I was, like I mentioned, the doing the private security contracting. And right as I was getting ready to graduate from law enforcement, it was kind of around the whole George Floyd incidents. Yep. And so I was actually in Minneapolis during the riots doing private security contracting for a couple of clients that we had and came back. And like the next morning, like right after my flight was when I had my state test out for the, the police exam. Um, so that's kind of like the beginning parts of me getting into law enforcement, I guess. Timing, right? Um, what, uh, what are the similarities between Marine, Marine boot camp and the police Academy? If there are any. Well, see, I'm probably not the best to ask that just because, so for me out here and kind of in Colorado, you can either put yourself through an academy and typically it's through a community college or, you know, there's some, some departments that'll have an in-house academy. Right. Typically the in-house academies are a little bit more military style, a little bit more strict. Um, so for mine going through a community college, it was, it was pretty laid back. Um, certainly some frustrating times where, you know, having folks that maybe they weren't from the military and trying to get them to, understand the whole cohesion piece of everything and hey nobody's gonna nobody's gonna drive you to um you know do more and make sure that you're prepared for what you're about to go do um so it's a little bit different for sure in your time in the police force uh as a cop you know what what's the experience like um are you in more danger as a cop than you were in the marine corps Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so I worked for a pretty, pretty busy department out here in Northern Colorado. Um, man, it was, it was awesome. I, I truly loved it. Um, every day is different. And it's like when you get into some hairy situations, they're far more real than at least the stuff I experienced in the military, just because like I said, you kind of had those, those safeguards in place or things like that. But being a cop, man, it's, it really is like the the whole front seat to the greatest show on earth. It's it's pretty wild. So does does the I mean, the, and I'll phrase this crudely: does the combat experience of being a cop somehow make up for the lack of combat experience you had as a marine? No, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I think they're two two different things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I remember. Yeah. I, I'll give you. I remember when I got back from my first deployment. There was a cop who worked out at the gym that I worked out at, and you know, he and I became buddies and everything. He knew I had just gotten back from the deployment, and he, he we got into a conversation one day, and uh, you know, he was saying, "I don't know how you did that, man. Like that, that's crazy." And I looked at him and said, "I don't know how you do what you do." I said, "I pulled yeah. the trigger over there. People patted me on the back. You guys pulled the trigger, and it's a mound of paperwork, and you might lose your job." Like, oh, yeah. you know, like I'm, I'm like, yo. My job was over there is easier than your job over here. I always kind of felt that way. Yeah. Yeah. There's that's the, the one thing with the cop stuff was, like, oh, by the way, this was way before like police. Yeah. Were all of a oh, it's considered gotten, the worst. Human that, as you'd imagine, it's gotten a lot, yeah. a lot more, uh, more strict, a lot more paperwork. But that was the one thing that was exhausting. was like, man, you, if you're getting into situations that get a little bit more intense, like you're having to constantly think about, well, if I do this, what's, what's the consequence of that versus just being able to come in and do your job. Um, that, that in Excel in itself got exhausting. Yeah. Um, is there a particular event 
that, you know, kind of stays with you more than another for any particular reason? As far mm-hmm. as, you know, what, what your time in the police force? Um, I don't know if there's one specific event. I know for me, it was like, I think it was my first or second day on patrol. My gun was out and it's like, okay, this is, this is a lot different than, than what I've been used to. Um, I think for me, the one thing that always stuck with me and it's kind of weird timing, especially with, uh, me and the wife having a, having a baby on the way. But one thing that was always frustrating for me was, so I never had a lot of exposure to, you know, children, um, especially being an only child and stuff like that. Um, aside from friends that had kids and stuff like that, but a lot of the exposure that I got to children was through law enforcement. And it was so frustrating because it was always in, in a negative way. You know, the cops are never there when kids are there for, for a good reason. Um, so seeing that and seeing it constantly, I think that's one thing that will always kind of stick with me. Um, certainly had a lot of, a lot of funny stories of me making mistakes as a rookie and ending up in foot chases that I shouldn't have, um, stuff like that. But overall, man, it was, it was an amazing experience. Um, amazing department, especially for out here in Colorado. Um, main reason for me leaving was just really just the politics, especially some of the stuff Colorado had passed. Mm-hmm. Just that's kind of what drove me away. I, I wanted to ask you, and again, I, you know, unfortunately you don't have this, this experience in the Marines, um, you know, in, in combat, because, you know, we talk a lot about the gap in training versus the reality of combat. And I, there mm-hmm. is absolutely a gap in the police Academy and the reality of what happens on the streets. Uh, what is that like? I know you talked a moment ago about the mistakes that you had made, but, you know, some of that stuff just naturally happens because there is a gap. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I guess the other thing is, you know, for a community college, they certainly did, you know, as good as they could have as far as trying to provide as much training as they could. I know, like, right before we graduated, we had a couple days of, like, um, mock scenarios with, like, sim rounds and stuff like that. So trying to make it as close to what the streets are going to be like as possible um, but I just, I, I feel like I cannot describe, I guess the, even just the feeling that I had, I remember getting, getting ready in the locker room that first day and then getting out onto the streets and it's like, holy shit, this is real. I'm a cop. These people I'm dealing with, some of them are not the nicest people. Some of them really don't like you. Um, I think for me too, like the cop stuff was really great as far as learning how to talk to people. Um, for me, it was much more fun trying to talk somebody out of wanting to fight with me than getting in a fight and trying to win them with them. Um, so, yeah, it's – I think if I could go back, I'd probably rather be a cop than going to the Marine Corps again. But, again, two kind of very different experiences. Yeah. Um, you mentioned you had to pull your gun out on your second day ever on patrol. What happened? Oh, I think that one was a – had a – can't remember how the call got aired out through dispatch, but we had a, I think she was maybe 12 or 13, 13 years old. And she had a uh, big old kitchen knife and was kind of fighting with her, with her mom and arguing with her parents and stuff like that. And then she was, she was suicidal. Um, so again, with the kid stuff, it's like you, the amount of stuff you see. And when it comes to kids is just, you got to be mentally prepared for it. Um 
But then, you know, I think it was the day after that, had my gun out again because I had a guy uh, end up running on me and barricade in the house and uh, had a couple warrants, things like that. And because I didn't just grab the guy, when we had this foot chase, we had the had him, had him barricaded for three or four hours. So SWAT teams calling out canine units. So, of course, being the new guy, everybody gives me shit. So, like, if you would have just grabbed them, we would have been done three hours ago. Ah, uh, good times, right? Um, you'd yeah. mentioned that, you know, the the political climate made you walk away from the police force. Just indulge me a little bit on, on – I know you said some of the laws that were passed, but kind of expound on it a little bit. So, I guess without getting too much into the weeds on them um, – I cannot recall the name of the bill, but Colorado had passed a, a bill where now officers can basically be sued personally. So they didn't have the, they're getting rid of the protections that were in place where if I'm out on the streets and somebody wants to sue me for something, really they're suing the department. Right. They're not the, suing the, me city, the city and the state and the department, right? Not yeah. personally um, Brady. <laughs> there was, there was a class that we had with one of the, uh, I guess she would be like an attorney advisor for the police department. And there was a question that came up because the, the whole body cam thing was starting to become very much more heavy where it's like, Hey, they've got to be on you. They've got to be running pretty much every time you go to a call. Somebody had asked, um, cause I think an incident happened that was kind of similar where somebody was driving to an emergent call. They forgot their body cam back at the PD and they were told, hey, go back and get your body cam before you go to that call. Um, and so for me, like little stuff like that where it's like, okay, if our job is to go respond to to emergencies, but then a body cam is going to take priority to doing that, and now you're putting potentially putting people's lives in danger through that, through a bill of somebody that's never done that job. Um, and then I think the other big thing that, kind of opened my eyes was, man, you had guys that were pretty close to retirement that right around all these bills getting passed. They're like, I'm, I'm fucking done. Um, and seeing that and, you know, being a year into it, it's like, I don't see this changing. Um, that's kind of, that's kind of the reason for me just really kind of looking at something else, even though I just like the military, I had no plan. I had no other option after law enforcement. So uh, you leave the police force, uh, and I mean, you're still doing private security on the side, correct? Or sort of at the, simultaneously? Um, so I, right when I was leaving, I did it a little bit, and then I actually had um, a private contracting company out of New York reach out to me that was working with Facebook. Ah, uh, yes. That's kind of how that whole that whole thing started. Okay, so expound. Give me some more. Yeah, so... Basically, with that company, they um, are contracted. I don't know if they still are or not, but we're contracted with Facebook where they would provide. Um, I'm trying to be careful. I don't know what all I can say and what I can't. But um, basically, they would provide uh, undercover employees in those offices. Um, and typically, it's only law, prior law enforcement guys that had the ability to go do that with this company. But um we put undercover employees in there for the purpose of active shooter response. I want to say that that program with Facebook was implemented after the, uh, the YouTube shooting that happened at one of their, their offices. I can't remember the year. 
Um, but so Facebook kind of, kind of wanted that program implemented. So, um, ended up getting to go do that with Facebook. I think for, did that for about seven or eight months. Only thing with that job was again, aside from politics was that was a hour and a half drive each way for me. Um, that'll, that'll burn you out a little bit, but it was a, it was an interesting one for sure. I think it was probably the hardest part about that job for me was trying to bend, blend in with Facebook employees, kind of looking, looking how I do. So I think, how I think it's Facebook, pretty awesome. How do Facebook but, employees look? Uh, so that's the thing. I don't really think that there's a type. Um, I would say, you know, not to, you know, group everybody into a pool, but I would say your typical college kid, that's. Yeah. That's what I was kind of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's funny. Because, Rolling you know, out of Facebook bed in a pair of flip flops and uh, going to work. Yes. Yeah, and these exactly are the people it. you're providing security for. Well, and the thing is, is that most of those people, they don't want you there. No, um, so it's, um, they're th- it's weird. I'm like, thoroughly I'm unaware like, of the threats in front of them. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I'm, I was used to that, especially from the cop stuff, but, um, yeah, it's funny because Facebook talks about inclusion and all this stuff, but man, I tell you, I've, I've never felt so judged in my life as when I would go into that office and go work in there. <laughs> really? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you know, I suppose there's something to be said for that, but you know, I, 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 I uh, yeah, I, the, the tech world is different, obviously. So yes. without casting any aspersions, it's just a different, I can't do it. I'm not, cut that way. My brain doesn't work that way. Um, wow. you know, I log on to Facebook to look at memes and laugh. That's about it. So, you there know, you go. Well, uh, that's, that was the hard part for me when they're like, Hey, you're going to pretend like you're a, uh, cybersecurity analyst. I'm like, dude, I don't know shit about computers. Like somebody asked me a question. It's going to be pretty fucking obvious that I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but it is funny. Cause I mean, it, it was still kind of during the whole COVID stuff. So, I mean, dude, that office, they had two floors. So, I mean, before COVID, I think you would have probably at least 200 employees in that office throughout the day. Man, there was days where there was maybe four four people in there. And it, they just had all these resources for the office and stuff like that. And, it, man, some days it looked like a little ghost town. Wow. Uh, so, the Facebook gig ends. Uh, I assume you still have Facebook. You didn't just get rid of it as soon as you left the company? Oh man, I thought about it. Um, I mean, I left on good terms with them. I think, um, so I was actually the only employee for that program here in Colorado. So it sounded like when I was kind of leaving, um, sounded like they kind of got rid of that program, at least here in Colorado. I don't know about the other offices. Um, but yeah, I still have my Facebook. Um, I'd say every day I, I debate whether I should delete it or not. Um, <laughs> Interesting. Um, I'm sure there's a longer discussion there that doesn't have anything to do with this podcast, but I, I'm curious. Uh, so then after Facebook, you now get into working in recruiting. Now, how does this transition happen that, you know, recruiting becomes your passion? And when I say recruiting, I mean, you know, recruiting veterans to, to jobs. Yeah. But like, how does, how does this, wh- wh- where's the connect? I'm not seeing it. Yeah. So <clears throat> funnily enough, like back when I was doing the private security contracting, I, um, you know, aside from being like a project manager for some of the the things that we were doing, I kind of took on, I don't even know how I fell into it, but kind of took on like a lead recruiting role internally for that company. 
So I think when I started doing that, I think that company had probably eight or nine contractors. And then when I took over the recruiting role, I think the largest that security company ever, ever got as far as contractors go was about 40 guys. Um, really we kind of had to add a lot of folks when we were doing the, uh, the Minneapolis protests. Um, so that's where I got, I guess my feet wet kind of in the recruiting space. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. I remember I ended up making an indeed account and I just posted a job and guys would apply to it. And I'd interview them and be like, Hey, you sound, you sound pretty good. I'll give you a job. Um, but then as I was transitioning from Facebook, I had a gentleman reach out to me that runs a kind of veteran centric recruiting agency, a, a third party recruiting agency. Um, reached out to me. He's like, Hey, we're working on some clients that are in the physical security space out in California. Do you have any interest in, you know, coming on and helping us? And it's like, the moment I found out that job was remote, I was like, fuck yeah, let's do that. Cause I was so tired of driving, you know, two hours each way. Um, that's where I kind of really got into the actual recruiting industry. And that was about a year and a half ago. Um, maybe a little less than that. Um, that's kind of how I got introduced to that space. So what is it? I mean, again, you know, the idea that you can connect with people um, and you talked earlier a lot about leadership. I, I suppose that's a big part of it too. Um, in handing that, you know, leading someone to a job is essentially what recruiting is and, and convincing them that they can do this and, uh, and helping them out along the way. I mean, it, all this is kind of, coming together for you at the same time. Yeah. Um, so like when I got, when I first got into that space, um, I realized how many things were wrong, at least in my opinion, with recruiting as a whole and especially with veterans. Um, for me, like it was always through LinkedIn. Um, I actually, I don't know how, but I had a federal job offer through LinkedIn. Um, but when I had interacted with recruiters, it was like, yeah, there was a couple decent ones, but there were some that were just like, man, they, they talk to you. And then the moment they figure out that maybe you're not a fit or, you know, something happens through that process and then you never hear from them. I was like, man, personally, that drives me nuts. Um, so when I started, you know, doing this and I kind of was fortunate enough when I was working at that company to kind of create my own processes, there wasn't really a whole lot of micromanagement and there wasn't really wasn't a defined path on how to be successful either. Um, so for me, being able to kind of do things the way that I wanted to and really the way that I looked at it was like, well, what would I want, you know, as a candidate or even as a business owner when I talk to somebody? It's like, well, I don't want to be lied to or bullshitted. I don't want to feel like I'm buying a used car when I talk to somebody. I just want to talk to somebody that I feel like is actually transparent, that knows what they're talking about, um, and so that was my approach when I started doing it and it, some reason it worked out really well. Um, and that's when I kind of really got to, you know, I guess, demonstrate the leadership stuff that I had always learned when I added a couple guys to my recruiting team at that previous company. Well, I, I want to ask more about recruiting in general, but I kind of sure. want to get, get, uh, caught up to current day with uh, working at co-hire uh, and, and you end up there, which is where you are now. Um, how, how does that transition work for you? And, and what is it about 
the current, you know, company that you're with that's kind of, um, I don't want to say better than the last one, but, you know, w- w- yeah. w- what is the, what was the draw to, to, to this company as opposed to just recruiting for anybody per se? Yeah. So um, I want to say back in, I think it's like around October timeframe. So I had had a couple of Skillbridge guys that interned with me um, on my recruiting team. So they were Skillbridge with me going through their military, military transition. They had no recruiting experience and we ended up being the, you know, the top team at this previous company. And, you know, the two gentlemen that were on my team, they really enjoyed recruiting too. And it's like, we had talks about like, Hey, maybe we just break off and we go do our own thing. Maybe we start up our own recruiting business. Um, and, you know, I mean, in, in the three months that we had been working together, we had a very solid book of business. As far as clients go, we were consistently placing veterans in those jobs. Um, and so it's weird how it worked out because, uh, Radius 180 was actually one of my clients at that previous company. And they're a veteran-owned uh, IT company based out of New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And so we met with their owner and it's like, hey, we're probably going to break off and do our own thing. And he's like, well, wait a minute. He's like, we've been wanting to kind of look at that. He's like, what if we invest in you guys? We start up a subsidiary of Radius 180 and you know, we let you guys take the reins and you kind of run the show and we see if we can build this up. And so that's how core hire came about. And I want to say we actually started, um, you know, going through all the processes and everything back in January. And it's, it's been awesome so far. Um, and I think for me, the, you know, the thing you asked what I liked better, I think for me, again, you know, being able to, I guess, do things the way we want to do it um, as well as, make changes where we want to and not have micromanagement, um, you know, be able to talk to people like humans. Um, that's probably been the, the biggest thing for me. Um, are you recruiting only military folks? So, so like we're, like I said, we're a typical third party agency. So basically when we partner with companies all over the U S various industries, um, when we take on recruiting for them, they'll be like, Hey, here's this job description. We're having a tough time filling this job. So what we do typically when we go out and start kind of handling that search and looking for candidates, we'll focus on military veterans, transitioning military or former first responders first, obviously folks that'll meet, meet the requirements and check the boxes. Um, But, you know, knock on wood, fortunately we've really, not had to explore too much of, Hey, we got to open this up to the general public because the veteran pool's not really there. Um, but yeah. Okay. And, and, I mean, it, listen, I think it's great that, you know, veteran hiring um, is a, it's still a challenge. It shouldn't be, but it is. Uh, and there are phenomenal companies and nonprofits out there who do it. Uh, hire heroes, you know, whoever it may be. There, there's there's companies out there that work really hard at it. But it shouldn't be that hard. It really shouldn't. Right. Um, but there's still a huge language barrier. Um, there still is a, as much as we all love veterans, and uh, as a good friend of mine, Mike Jason, always says, we love you until we don't. Um, yeah. They don't love you when it comes to the finish line of hiring because you don't have 
the exact experience they're looking for. Even though you have a different experience and probably more experience than what they're looking for, um, they're not able to decipher that through, you know, resumebuilder.com or whatever it is. Um, What is the biggest challenge you find in helping decode military language to civilians? Hmm. I would say probably more of my frustrations comes from, I guess, more of the candidate side of the house um, where what I've seen since I've been in this space is there's, there's a lot of companies out there that focus on veteran placements and stuff like that. Um, there's some really big ones out there. Um, and some of them, when you pull back the curtains, you realize maybe veterans really aren't their priority. Um, some of them advertise that they're veteran owned. And when you look them up, they're really not. Um, but as far as like, you know, when I get with companies, uh, I would say there's, there's really two kinds of companies, at least from what I've seen. There's ones that they want to hire veterans because of tax write-offs and stuff like that. And those are the ones that I absolutely refuse to do any business with. Um, and there's other ones that it seems like, Probably 99% of the time when I get with a company that's struggling to hire and fill a job, they go, all we need is somebody that, you know, has a heartbeat that can think that is willing to learn that can show up on time that wants to work with us for a while and, you know, build a career. We'll take care of everything else. Yeah. And by the way, that should be this recruiting spiel for the military. Um, We don't use that recruiting spiel, but that should be the spiel. Right. Um, and so, you know, you a lot of essentially just checked know, off all the blocks of blocks for enlistment. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, man, you'd be amazed. There's so, there's so many companies that I've talked to that they, they have such good benefits. They're competitive in the market opportunities to grow and they're struggling to even have people show up to interviews and stuff. And it's like, you know, if you want somebody that's going to be on time, that's going to be a part of a team that'll go the extra mile for you. Not all veterans are that way, but Typically, if you look at them as a whole, yeah. that's what you're going to get. Um, so I wouldn't say there's I've ever had an issue of like deciphering, hey, here's your military experience and talent. How do we translate that to this over here? Because um, typically when I'm working with companies, it's like, hey, anybody I submit to you is going to be a fit for this job. Um, just because I think that's where. The recruiting space gets frustrating just because one, it's so saturated. Everybody thinks it's, you know, quick, easy money where really it's about fostering relationships. Um, and people just, like I said, they're, they're lazy with it where, Hey, this resume maths matches this job description and they're matching pieces of paper versus, Hey, this person and this personality matches with this company and what their goals are. Um, I think that's why we've been successful as we go, okay, Put the papers away. Papers are irrelevant. Let's let's bring people together and you know missions and things like that together and see see what gels. And I think the other thing is people just overcomplicate recruiting as a whole. Like I'm fully aware I'm not the the brightest crayon in the box, but it's like if my dumbass can figure out how to how to get these companies merge with people that want to work for them. It can't be well, too hard. And that, and that's, you know, that's the other challenge too, is that not enough veterans are getting a chance to sit down face to face with people because yeah. the, the resume algorithm um, doesn't work out in their favor. Uh, yeah. It's not a case where they're, 
hey, come take a tour of our facility or let's meet face-to-face. Let's go have coffee. Let me figure out who you are and what you're about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you could be a great fit for this company. Um, so I think that that is a, another huge challenge. But I've seen all too many times where, you know, uh, the veteran is, is part of the process and they're going through and they get to the finish line and ultimately they're not chosen. Um, yep. and, and that is incredibly frustrating. Um, because, and it, it's so funny, the, the expectation is, is that I think that uh, they don't understand the level of leadership and management experience that we have and what is commensurate with mid-level manager. I mean, you know, we understand this. There's no mm-hmm. reason to think that sergeants, uh, you know, squad leaders and, and uh, sergeants and platoon leaders aren't already mid-level management experience. In the army, we're at the lowest level, right? In the army, we're down to the, yeah. or in the military, we're down to the lowest level. The squad and the platoon are the, are the lowest level it is. That's entry level for the military, but that is mid level management in the civilian world, uh, just based yeah. off the number of people that you're in charge of and the the amount of things that you're in charge of. That is mid level management experience, but it doesn't equate that way. Um, yeah, just for whatever reason, the, the 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 language or the math doesn't add up, and and there's a lot of barriers to it. Um, yeah, 100%. you know, so it's from that standpoint, it's, I, I think it's incredibly infuriating. Uh, t- tell me more about, uh, Stillwater Ranch, uh, and, and what you're yeah. doing with veterans there. Cause I think this is amazing. Yeah, man. It feels like listening to this conversation. I'm like, I got way too much shit going on and I've done <laughs> way too many different random jobs, but yeah. So with, uh, Stillwater Ranch, um, want to say we found Stillwater Ranch. Oh gosh. Probably little bit before this time last year um i think the wife somebody brought it into dispatch a flyer or something like that and i looked at it and it's like oh what the hell is this there's a lot of stuff about you know horses and veteran therapy and stuff like that um so i guess the other thing for me is you know i certainly had you know quite a bit of mental health struggles after getting out of the military as a lot of guys do um so for me i'm very passionate about that space as well um, and so when I, when I saw it, I'm like, Hey, let's go check this out, especially cause it's 10 minutes down, down the road from us. And so I did a tour of the, the ranch with Wendy, the owner. Um, I was like, Oh, this is fucking awesome. It's a 10 acre horse property out in, uh, out in Loveland, Colorado. And it's specifically for veterans and former first responders and or active first responders and stuff like that. Um, And so when I started going over there, I realized like, Hey, most of the guys that are coming to the ranch for events or to hang out and stuff like that, they're kind of the the older generation of guys. And it's like, well, what if we try and do stuff to have guys, my generation come out kind of the younger guys. Um, So I ended up kind of falling into the the ranch foreman role over there. Um, We implemented like a MMA program that we were doing on, I believe it was Monday nights kind of put that on, on pause just because the weather gets a little cold doing, doing MMA in the barn. <laughs> but um, yeah, man, it's been, it's been awesome to be a part of. So like I said, there's, there's quite a few events that, that go on. Um, Dan from project refit, those guys were out at the ranch uh, last summer. I think there was 13, 13 folks from project refit that, that came out and spent, spent a week, 
So it was like fly fishing, horseback riding, um, bonfires, MMA stuff. Um, I tell guys like probably the easiest way for me to explain the ranch is it's 10 acres with horses where you can come out and kind of do as you want, as long as you don't break shit that I have to fix. Um, am I getting getting the authentic Yellowstone experience at the ranch? Is that basically what's going on here? I mean, so one of the things we're doing, just because I always have guys ask me, like, hey, can I ride a horse? <laughs> like, so the, the horses that are out there are can I ride are all rescues. Uh. Um, so we're, I was doing a lot of groundwork with the horses over the summer, but I'm actually meeting with Wendy this weekend, and I think we're going to look at creating a program where maybe at the end of it, horses are getting saddles, maybe people can hop on and ride it and do their little Yellowstone experience they want to do, but... I mean- Look, I got to tell you, uh, I'm in my 40s. I've never actually been on the back of a horse. Dude, it's it's very relaxing as long as you're on a good horse. Well, yeah, I, mean, you know, I grew up around horses, but that was at the track betting on them. So that was a different okay. experience. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a whole different world out there of actually getting yeah. on the horse. I was always too big to get on the horse. You know, uh, <laughs> the jockeys are a little bit smaller than me. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, listen, I, I I think it's a great experience for families and kids too, you know. Um, yeah. And and any time I think, and here's what you know when you when you at Stillwater Ranch when you're bringing veterans and their families together, right? Because a lot of the the a lot of the mental health stuff that we go through, and a lot of the repair or, or at least damage repair, battle damage repair that we have to do as veterans is done alone. Right, the veteran, yes. like your families are on the sideline, they're there to support, but they're never actually doing it with you. And yes. I think any time you can you can bring the families along, um, they'll help. Even the even the kids help gain a better understanding of yes. what mom or dad is going through and what they need. And, and uh, I, I think that is an important part of it. You know, uh, so often in the military, the military mindset is, "Hey, man, you control this. You do it on your own." You know, like it, it's, yep. it's as simple as cleaning your rifle and getting it to fire and putting around on a target, right? Like it just, that's you, it's your discipline. It's you, it's you figure it out and you know what to do. And sure. There are people there who can say, Hey, 250 meters or whatever it is. And you know where to look, but ultimately still you're the one putting the, the, the front side post on it and, and pulling the trigger. So, um, yeah. I think it's great when you can sort of get them immersed in that, that experience. I, I think that part really is, uh, is certainly critical and, and, is is difference making? You know, I think that's a that's a big part of it. Hundred percent. No, and that and that was the big thing for us too. Is like, at least that was my thought of it. Was at least for me and my experience was like, you know, I I saw other organizations that were doing stuff for vets, and a lot of it was labeled therapy. And for me, it was like when I saw it was labeled as therapy, or almost felt like you were forced to partake in therapy. For me, that's where my interest was like, uh, I don't know that I want to go do this. Um, and so with the stuff at the ranch, it's like, if you take a step back and look at all of it, whether it's the MMA, whether it's stuff with the horses, whether it's 30 guys smoking a, a cigar around a fire, like it's all therapy and it all will happen organically. And you don't have to label it anything and you don't have to try and force it. Um so seeing that and being a part of that, that's probably been one of my favorite things. And I think I'm just, again, I'm very grateful to be able to do what I can to help veterans in the professional space. And then, you know, on the personal side of the house, build relationships and kind of do things with guys 
completely non-work related. So it's been it's been awesome to be a part of. I still sometimes I wonder how the hell I ended up here, but very grateful for it. Do you uh, what do you think the expectations for the ranch are as far as growth and what it could be in the future? I know you talked about riding the horses, but yeah. beyond that, like what is you know what do you hope for it? So there's there's big plans of, and these plans were all kind of in place before I came about. Um, I think there's plans and trying to work towards uh, purchasing a bigger property for vets where, um, you know, maybe down the road there's enough cabins to be able to hold like unit reunions or there's a, there's a fishing pond or things like that. So there's, there's plans in the works. A lot of it's, you know, with it being a nonprofit, a lot of it is fundraising and events and stuff like that. Um, which I mean, I, I would love to be a part of that. So hopefully, hopefully in the future that that'll happen. I know we're, we've got a lot of stuff still kind of lined out with project refit. sounds like they're coming out over the summer again, but like I said, I mean, those guys have been an amazing resource ever since I, I crossed paths with them. So very excited about the future for, for all the stuff that I get to get to be a part of. And, and co-hire by the way, uh, is nationwide. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like I said, we've, I always make the jokes when I talk to talk to companies. It's like, Hey, we've done recruiting for pretty much anything you could think of aside from like fucking astronauts or doctors. Um, typically in the recruiting space, everybody will kind of have their niche. Like, Hey, this company really does engineering or maybe just it, but we've been fortunate enough to just do anything really, but focus on vets and handle it remotely. Okay. Well, for some I, reason, I don't, but New Jersey, New Jersey has always been a hot one. If there's any companies that want to hire that are outside of New Jersey, I'd, I'd be more than happy to. <laughs> Corehire.us, uh, the website, C-O-R-E-H-I-R-E, Corehire.us uh, is the website if anybody's interested in, in looking for, uh, obviously, recruiting services. But uh, I'm sure they'll find you at some point in time along the way on the process. Yeah. Goal. All right. Well, look, man, um, it, it, I think what you're doing – Post-military career is amazing. Uh, anytime you can directly impact veterans' lives, uh, I, I think that's always noteworthy and it's always worthwhile discussing. Uh, and given where we are, uh, you know, th- there is always a, a uh, need for people to continue to work in the veteran space and provide veterans with resources and access to things that might not otherwise be there. So, again, corehire.us. And, of course, you can also go check out uh, the Stillwater Ranch, right, um, and, and – you know, all that they have to offer, but it looks like it's been a great run, man. And I wish you nothing but success going forward, man. It's been great to get to know you. Oh, thanks, man. I truly appreciate it. And uh, like I said, thanks for having me on here. I, I truly enjoy watching all the, all the guests that you have. I think that was the, that was the first thing I said to you is you asked me to come on. I'm like, dude, I do not stack up with some of the folks that you've had on here, but well, very, it's, very great. It's funny. We, we, I hear that a lot. And I, and I have to remind people one, everybody's story relates to somebody. Um, and a lot of times what we find is, you know, what people do in their post-military career sometimes trumps what they've done in their military career. And, and that's, you know, as I said, the the veteran space right now is, is difficult to navigate. Um, and it's never been easy, but given everything that, that is going on in the world, um, it's also a difficult space right now just to get through. And a lot of us just want simple things done simply. Right. And I say to my, I heard it in the military a million times and I say it to my kids all the time, do the simple thing. Simple, man. Don't, don't, 
Don't complicate the, the easy stuff because there's enough hard stuff out there. And in theory, the veteran space should be pretty simple, right? Because we don't demand a lot. Like, there's not a large portion of veterans who are out there saying, you owe me, you owe me, you owe me. Uh, I don't right. know any of us believe that. For the, the At least the good veterans don't believe that. That's been uh, the hot topic as of late. There's, it seems like there's a lot of folks now that assume veterans do think that way. No. That's been, been another thing we've been trying to combat on our end. It's like I've never crossed a veteran that feels like they're entitled because they're a veteran. No. What, what, what we all want is just an opportunity, right? Hey, yeah. j- just like exactly. anything else, you know, hey, you're now the squad leader. Go ahead and do it. Give me a chance and, and let me figure yeah. it out. You know, I might make some mistakes, but go ahead and, and give me the opportunity and, and I'll do my best. And, you know, um, the work ethic and all the other stuff that, that, we, that we pride ourselves on that has made us successful within the military ranks can make us equally as successful on the outside. But, again, that's uh, – for some reason, that that does not translate in the mind of people. You know, they don't really yeah. see work ethic at the forefront, right? I mean, we, we, in the military, we look at somebody, well, if they're trying, I can fix it. I can't fix them not trying, you know? Yeah. Uh, you can have all the smarts in the world, but if you're not going to get off your ass, there's not, there's not a conversation we can have in the military because now I've got to invest time in getting you off your ass. Well, you yeah. know, all the smarts in the world and not getting off your ass in the civilian world get you a job, pretty high-paying one. Uh, whereas, you know, the guy who wants to work his tail off guy or gal who want to work their tail off are, are, are sort of fighting for a seat at the table. And again, uh, you know, we, we could hash this out a hundred times over, but you know, yeah. don't, don't, uh, like I said, somebody will, somebody watching this will, will reach out to core hire and, and somebody will, will, will end up at Stillwater at some point or somebody will reach out. I, I, I think that's the point of the hazard ground community. And, and I appreciate you coming on and, and helping bring that to light, man. So wish you nothing but the best and, and certainly continued success. And, uh, you stay in touch and let us know if you need anything. But thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Yeah, brother. Thank you. Thanks for letting me come on. Like I said, I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.